Today on The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. Beloved, that's the only way I would ever want our church ever, ever to grow, is that it would first grow in depth, long before it grew in width. Because a wide church is a powerless church. A wide church that does not have depth is just another club, it's just another meeting, and it's meaningless to the world outside. As they look, oh yeah, they got a lot of people, but hey, I, I see that guy down at the the club and I'm not talking about the exercise club. Uh, I see this I see, you know, this this gal, I had to deal with her man in a business deal. Man, you don't ever want to deal with that lady at all. As we are learning about the churches in Revelation, we're warned not to be superficial. It's common these days for churches not to be too deep. They don't want to teach anything that might offend their congregation. They keep it simple, only speaking of the benefits of Christianity. Pastor David wants us to have depth. He encourages us to read our Bible and pray every day. We should rightly divide the Word of God and seek to know the whole truth. We are going to be held accountable one day. Well, let's join Pastor David in the book of Revelation chapter 2 with today's edition of The Open Word. Revival that's happening in Ephesus is growing in intensity and in depth, both width and depth. Beloved, that's the only way I would ever want our church ever, ever to grow, is that it would first grow in depth long before it grew in width. Because a wide church is a powerless church. A wide church that does not have depth is just another club it's just another meeting, and it's meaningless to the world outside. As they look, oh, yeah, they got a lot of people, but, hey, I, I see that guy down at the, the club, and I'm not talking about the exercise club. Uh, I see this, I see, you know, this, this gal, I had to deal with her, man, in a business deal. Man, you don't ever want to deal with that lady at all. And they're part of a wide church. I want a church that when we're in the world, that people look and see, man, what a, dynamic difference we live our lives to where it impacts the world that's around us width does nothing depth does great great and mighty things many believe they came confessing and telling their deeds also many of those who had practiced magic they brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. God was doing a powerful and a great work. And he wasn't going to let the charlatans get in the way of his glory. God was on the move in this great city of Ephesus, and he wasn't 
going to allow a false movement to come and take place. And yet, even at this, we see, again, the enemies of the Lord, the enemies of the gospel, they're, they're not, they're not going to keep quiet. They're not done. They don't want the gospel spread. They don't want lives to be changed because the lie, the, the gospel had changed the lives of so many men and women that it was starting to change the landscape of that city and even that region. As a matter of fact, there was such a move of God that men who sold these little statues and these little idols, they began losing money. Wouldn't it be great if a revival took place in our town so great that the drug lords and the drug deals that are so rampant in this city they just didn't have any any customers that have to move on. Wouldn't it be great if the revival in this city and people got truly saved, not just saying, oh, I'm a member of this church or I'm a member of that church, but they got so truly saved that the bars started losing business in the town. Wouldn't it be great if there was such a revival within the church of God that the divorce court would have to close because there's just no business because even the Christians aren't getting divorces anymore. Now, that would be amazing. And that's what was going on, in essence. Some of you have heard uh, the, the great events of the Welsh Revival. Literally and truly, at that Welsh Revival, bars were being closed because the guys that used to go in and spend all of their money every day were no longer going there. Marriages were healed. Why? Because the guy that would never come home because he spent his whole time in the bar until he was so snockered that he came and collapsed at home before he woke up the next morning and went back out to work. These guys were getting saved. They were coming home. They were, again, getting to know their children, getting to know their wives and their families. And it changed the entire countryside. Why? Because God was on the move. And this is what's going on in Ephesus at this point in time. And you need to realize this is like in the um, 35 to, to 40 A.D. time period. This is, uh, again, this is happening just just a few years after the death, burial, resurrection, and the ascension of our Lord Jesus as Paul is out on these missionary journeys. And we see this Spirit of God working and moving in such a powerful way. But look what happens. And uh, I don't know if we have time to read all of it, but uh, this riot that, that takes place in chapter 19, you can look at it sometimes later. Uh, at, at about verse 23, there arose a great commotion about what what does your version say a great commotion about what the way that's what they were calling us christians the way i love that name i love that why because there's no other way outside of jesus there is only one way and that's jesus this was the way to salvation through jesus and they were called the way there's such a disturbance about it Demetrius, a silversmith, he couldn't even sell his little silver shrines of Diana. And, and again, they weren't making any profit. And so he starts complaining. Men, you know that you, that we have our prosperity by this trade. Verse 26. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but where? Throughout almost all of Asia. This Paul has persuaded and turned away many people saying, they are not gods which are made by hand. So he is messing up 
our business, our lives, our community. And in reality, he's bringing it right again. And so a big riot takes place in the, in the midst of Ephesus, and we read again that, uh, again, the, 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 the coming against him and trying to, again, the, this big uproar that was going on by the time you get to chapter 20, verse 1, says, after the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, he embraced them, and he departed to go to Macedonia, okay? So from there, Paul moved on to Greece, then to Philippi, then to Troas. From Troas, he and some of his companions headed towards Jerusalem to keep the day of Pentecost. As they were coming around by sea, they landed in Miletus. Miletus is south of where Ephesus is. But he decided he was going to sail past Ephesus because, again, he didn't have the time to spend there because he had to get to Jerusalem by the day of Pentecost. Neither did he want to cause the big uproar again. We pick the story up in chapter 20, verse 16. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus, and he called for the elders of the church. So there they are in Miletus, and he sends a runner, a messenger, to go up to Ephesus, tell the elders to come down here and meet me. I'm not going to go up there. So they go and get the elders, and when they had come to him, he said to them, This is Paul speaking to the elders of the church or churches within uh, Ephesus. There could have been a multitude of uh, uh, house churches. There could have been multitude of churches that were still meeting at some of these various schools and training areas. Anyway, the elders come, and he's speaking to them. And he says in verse 18, You know from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you. Serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, and how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly from house to house. It's that idea, again, those house churches, that he would just go from one to another and to another and just give them the fullness of the gospel, not holding back anything. He says, I was testing, verse 21, I was testifying to the Jews, also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. See, now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. Verse 24, But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy, and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And indeed, Now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Paul understood this was going to be his last stop there. He knew that when he went to Jerusalem, he was going to be arrested. We know the story of Paul at that point in time. They got him on a ship. He finally ended up in Rome in a prison in Rome. But he goes on to tell them in verse 26. 
Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourself and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Now, if you would have stopped right there, And if you said, God bless you guys, go in the strength of the Holy Spirit, I will see you later, he would have done a fair job, but he would not have done a complete job. Because Paul also knew that the church was going to be ravaged by wolves that were going to come in. And so he began warning these elders, and this is what he said, verse 29, For I know this, that after my departure... Savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up. And I'm wondering as he's, we don't know how many elders there were. Maybe there were a dozen, maybe there were a couple of dozen. We just don't know. And I'm just wondering as he's speaking to these guys, and you know what? And I know among you, there's going to raise up some. I wonder if his eyes just really penetrated right to the very core of some of these men. I wonder how uncomfortable some of them felt at that point in time. Kind of like uh, Judas felt when Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me this night. How did you know that? Who told you that? The Holy Spirit, through a word of wisdom, a word of knowledge, to speak that into Paul's life even at that point in time. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. In other words, they were going to, they were going to kind of pull their own thing together. They wanted to have their own little clique happening that's not under any kind of control of anybody else. No oversight to them. They could go out and do their own thing and they, uh, again would be the, the top dog. So Paul warns them in verse 31. He says, therefore watch. And remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who were with me. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. Now, we don't read a whole lot more about Ephesus in the book of Acts after that point. We it's mentioned when we're reading through the book of Corinthians. It's mentioned in Timothy and, of course, Paul's letter to the church, the letter to the uh, church of Ephesus. And that was written about 64 A.D., probably about 10 years or so after these events that were taking place. The tradition is is that Timothy 
ministered at least for a season in Ephesus. And then he was succeeded in that ministry by the apostle John. But rather John came there while Timothy was still living or not, we have absolutely no way of knowing. It's agreed by most accounts that John the apostle spent many, many years of his life there in Ephesus. As a matter of fact, would have, would die there in Ephesus. When he went to Ephesus, or why he went there, we really don't know. The common opinion is, is that he remained at or near Jerusalem for some 15 years after the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus while he took care of Mary, the mother of Jesus. But uh, sometime after that, he went to Ephesus, and again, that's where he spent his last days. And according to a book, Lives of the Apostles by David Bacon, he died at the age of about 100, just a few short years after being released from the Isle of Patmos. Of course, he writes the book of Revelation while he's on the Isle of Patmos. So here in this most pagan of cities in that whole region, it was a glorious Roman city, and as great of a glory that it had was also the greatness of the pagan worship that was there. So in the midst of all of this, it would seem as though Paul had planted one of the most powerful church works again, that we see during that time. And he left in place there a strong group of elders, followed by the leadership then of Timothy and of John. No no schmucks at all. I mean, we're talking about powerful guys. Even these, these elders were trained by Paul himself. And then, of course, Timothy, if he would have came as an overseer over that area. There was no doubt that at one point in time, it was a very powerful church right in the midst of all of this pagan worship. Very active, strong church surrounded by perversion. The Temple of Diana, also called the Temple of Artemis, it was 425 feet long. 60 feet tall with a roof over this thing that's 425 feet long and 220-something feet wide. Huge, huge structure. The worship of Diana or of Artemis, that was really and truly at the heart of Ephesus' life and their economy because, again, Diana or Artemis was considered... Uh, powerful, he was also, or she was also, he was a female deity. She was also the protector of the temple. And people all around that area of the known world would actually deposit money there at that temple of Diana. And again, because it was safe there, it was protected. And then in turn, that money was loaned out at high interest. So I could protect my hundreds and thousands of dollars in there and I could come back later and get it. But while they were taking care of it there, they would loan your money out and charge people high interest to gain more money. It's our national banking system. That's the way that works. Uh, worshippers at the uh, Temple of Diana. Um, just kind of looking around to see ages in here. Uh, it, it was sex worship is all that it was, is they would go in and they would have uh, prostitutes, both male and female, that were there. And again, through that act of sex, that's how they believed that they connected with Diana, the goddess of fertility and all that was there. And that was going on 
continually there at this temple. And that was the main religion of that time. And there we find John, we find Timothy, we find these elders, and we find the task of the Christian church there. It's not unlike where we're at today, folks. We may not have a huge building in downtown Casa Grande that's got it, but we've got computers and homes in nearly every home. We've got TVs in nearly every home with cable TV and all kinds of perversion that could go on. It's all over us. It's no different than Ephesus. It's right there. How do we deal with that? How do we, as believers, stay strong in the midst of that? Don't fool yourself into thinking that, well, probably no Christian would have ever gone to the temple of Diana. That's kind of like saying no Christian would ever watch pornography. We need to change that. No Christian should ever watch pornography. But Christians do. And it's a battle today but as with men, but it's also a rising battle with women today. Our culture is filled with it. How do we impact our culture We look at the church of Ephesus and we see for them there is smack dab right in the middle of all of that perversity. And beloved, you and I are too. We're in the same situation. So John writes the words of Jesus to the angel or to the messenger or to the minister, the church of Ephesus. Back in Revelation, he says to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstand. These things says who? Says he, Jesus. Remember, we looked at this last week, that one standing there in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, holding the seven stars in his hand. The seven stars, again, representing these seven angels or these seven ministers of the churches in his hands. And he's walking in the midst of the golden lampstands. Those golden lampstands represent these seven churches that he's going to be speaking to. So this is a clear picture uh, that each of these ministers and each of these churches were absolutely and totally dependent upon Jesus. Jesus is holding these stars in his hand and these seven church or uh, lampstands are all surrounding. It was Jesus who had the power also to continue or to remove either the minister or the ministry. He had that power. He had that authority. And that's exactly what he's going to speak here to the church of Ephesus. His presence, the presence of Christ himself, was so absolutely necessary for the continuance of the strength and of the ministry of that church, just like it is here in this place. Beloved, if we don't have Christ, we might as well sell burgers and fries and, you know, put in an amusement park back here because it's of absolute no value. I could come in here and tell you all kinds of good things to do with your life, how you ought to treat each other, how husbands ought to treat their wives, how children ought to uh, treat their parents, parents treat their children. I can give you all kinds of good things to say. But, beloved, if we don't have Christ, it's worthless. It's useless. 
And that's exactly what he's going to speak to the church of Ephesus. His presence absolutely necessarily. And it seems to be the principal idea implied down in verse 5. He says, man, if you don't, I'm going to come to you quickly and I'm going to remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. We'll get to that in a moment. But first, Jesus gives them a commendation for the good things that they're doing. The letters to the churches found in Revelation 2 and 3 repeat the phrase, to the one who overcomes, followed with a promise centered in God's goodness to his people. What does overcoming look like for you today? Maybe it's just getting up in the morning, getting dressed, and going out into life. Maybe it's continuing to sing His praises even through a tough circumstance. Maybe overcoming today is holding on to that small hope that tomorrow can be a better day in your marriage. Take some time today to check out those promises, remembering to hold on to Jesus because He is our hope. We're so glad you tuned in today to The Open Word. We know that life is tough, but doing life in community can make even the hardest situation more bearable. With that in mind, here's Pastor David with an invitation for you. Hey, if you're in the Casa Grande area and you're looking for a church to attend, I'd love to have you join us here at Calvary Chapel of Casa Grande. We meet Sunday mornings at 9 and 11 a.m. At 6.30 p.m., we meet on Wednesday evenings and Saturday evenings. You can find directions and a little more about the church by visiting theopenword.com. Follow the links at the bottom of the page to Calvary Chapel of Casa Grande. I'm excited to have you be a part of our time of Bible study and fellowship. Our website, one more time, is theopenword.com. Information about the church is at the bottom of that page, the link for Calvary Chapel of Casa Grande. Thanks, Pastor David. With that, our time with you has come to an end. Pastor David still has much to share, though, so be sure to tune in again to continue walking verse by verse through Revelation. That's right here on The Open Word. Make-